What I would love to do is, if I may, um, I'd like to look at um, one of the stories which is told in the Bible. Uh, And even if you've never read the Bible before, the chances are that you've heard of it or you know of it. And it's a story about a guy called Jonah. And um, if you want to follow along a little bit with what I'm saying, um, you'll find that there are Bibles lying around. And on page 936, you'll find the book of Jonah. Um, If you don't have a Bible at home and you would like one, then please feel free to take this one with you. Um, I always like to give away other people's stuff. It makes me feel very generous. Um, It's the only thing that you're allowed to steal from a church without getting into too much trouble. Uh, So uh, please do um, uh, take that if you would like to. Now, the reason I want to have a look at the book of Jonah is for a variety of reasons. It's not just that it's a fascinating book or fascinatingly put together. Uh, If you have time to study it, you'll actually see that it's in a book of two halves. You've got Jonah's chapter 1 and 2, and then you've got Jonah's chapter 3 and 4, and it's incredibly poetical. There's a poetical structure within each chapter, and there's also a poetical structure between the two parts. And um, so if you read Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. If you read chapter 3, verse 1, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You might recognize that phrase. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, it says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because of its wickedness has come up before me. And in Jonah chapter 3, verse 2, it says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, it says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, it says, but Jonah obeyed the word. So in each time you see this incredible parallel that runs you know, all the way through. So it's a beautiful piece of literature that's put together in a fascinating kind of way. But it's actually much more profound than that because this story gives us insight into maybe one of the greatest single cultural challenges that I see in the world right now. And um, as a matter of fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I was with a particular uh, government in Asia where I was spent six hours with the cabinet um, looking actually at in depth some of the uh, things I'm going to just highlight here with you now because we do live in quite a disorientating time and it's hard at times to get our own hearts around it. And the story of Jonah gives us great hope and also great insight. Now, why is that? Well, um, in the story of Jonah, in the very first few verses, we have, I've already read the first three, God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I have something for you to do, and Jonah runs away from God. And what is interesting is that there are lots of people who run away from God in the Bible all the time, but Jonah's slightly different. Most of the people who run away from God, they run away from God because they've done something wrong and they're ashamed of it or they want to hide it. But Jonah's very different. Jonah runs away from God not because he's done something wrong. Jonah runs away from God because he thinks God has done something wrong. And this raises one of the most important questions of our time. How do we deal with our sense of injustice? I don't know if anything has ever happened to you that you feel is wrong, terribly wrong. You were hurt, you were betrayed. It's not just the fact that you've been wronged, The challenge comes if you internalize that wrong and that wrong begins to identify you. It begins to shape your character and everything else. It's not just that now you move from being a victim to wanting to victimize the person who victimized you. Does that make sense? And you suddenly turn the tables on them. You want everybody else around you to hate that person as well. I'm sure you've never ever done this. I'm sure you've never ever fallen out with anybody to such an extent that you're basically saying to your friends, it's me or them. You're going to have to choose because what they did is so utterly, totally and incredibly wrong that if you don't support me, then you're clearly a moron. And not only are you a moron, that you're also with them. So you're going to have to choose sides. Are you with me, the one who's been oppressed, or with my oppressors? I love those kinds of questions. Do you want to be an oppressed one or an oppressor? It's a great way to put it forward. I used to love playing around with those questions when I was younger. I can remember when I was about 
seven years old, growing up in the Middle East, saying to a group of friends once, you know, can I ask you a yes or no question? And when they agreed, I'd say, does your mother know you're stupid? And it doesn't matter how you answer that question right, you're going to be in trouble <laughs> because of the way the question's summed. But when we take on this psychology, this identity, this is what happens. And so what happens with this word comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh. Now you might think that if Jonah hates the Ninevites and God is saying, Jonah, go up against this city because it's very evil and the evil has risen up to me and I want, and I want you to go and tell them that they're wrong, you think Jonah would think this is great. Does that make sense? How many of you would like divine authority to go to the people you like the least and tell them how wrong they are? Again, I'm sure you never have these little fantasies where you feel someone's mistreating you and they're wrong but, and you want everybody to know and in your fantasy somehow you know, you're mic'd up to a global microphone and they come and they start telling you all kinds of horrible things and yelling at you and the whole thing's being broadcast live to everybody they know and everybody they don't know and you're 100% vindicated. I'm sure you never have these power trips, dreams that I do. It goes to show you just what a fallen human being I am. But we, you would think he would be happy but clearly he's not happy. He runs away. He runs away in the furthest possible way he can. He, first of all, he goes down to a port. So he goes all the way down to the coast. That's a downhill journey. Then he goes down into a boat. Then he goes down into the bottom of the boat. And he goes out onto a big sea. And he says, and he went to Joppa where he found a ship. And after paying for the fare, he went and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that it threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid and cried out to his God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. And if you know the story, he goes down into the bottom of the ship. He falls asleep when this great storm is going on. And then he tells the sailors, throw me into the sea. If you throw me into the sea, the storm will go away. The sailors throw him into the sea. The storm goes away. That makes quite an impression on them, I can tell you. Okay? And then he goes down into the water head first. Okay, and then a giant fish comes and swallow him. This is part of the story that some people feel is a little bit fishy. It never <laughs> ceases to amaze me how many people I meet around the world will say to me, unless God does a miracle, I'll never believe in him. And let him do one right now. And in the same breath will say, how can you believe in this book that has so many miracles in it? Look, you can't have it both ways. Either you want God to do a miracle or you don't. But you can't, that makes sense, you can't argue both of those simultaneously. You have a problem. Anyway, he goes into the belly of the fish and the fish goes down to the bottom of the sea and then literally there's a Hebrew word there, shoal. He goes all the way down to the very depths of hell itself. And it's like a pictorial image. In the, in the, in the Hebrew, it's got this beautiful poetical structure and the word is repeated all the way through. It doesn't come across in the English translation. It's going down, 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 down until he hits literally rock bottom. There's no, there is no further down to go. That is how angry he is with God. And that's very interesting when we look at our own selves. We sometimes think that someone, for example, like Friedrich Nietzsche, the well-known philosopher, was an atheist. But actually, that's not strictly speaking true. What Nietzsche actually said is, if there is a God, he is so morally wrong. What he teaches is so morally bad you have to fight against him. Does that make sense? In other words, even if there is a God and he really exists, the only decent place to be is fighting against him as an atheist. Now, sometimes we're not that explicit. Sometimes we're just disappointed. Uh, Terry Pratchett, that well-known author, once described himself as an atheist who was angry at God for not not existing. (laughs) Think about that for a minute. An atheist who was angry at God for not not existing. We are often wrapped up in all kinds of disappointments. 
And the reason why this is such an interesting book is that Jonah has suffered terrible things. The city of Nineveh is a part of the Assyrian Empire. Now, if you want to do some reading in ancient history, you'll very quickly discover, discover that the Assyrian Empire was one of the most evil of all of the ancient empires. It was one of the most terrible. As a matter of fact, the evil they did and the terror they spread is regarded by many to be the single worst case of evil dominance that the world has ever seen. Because they weren't just simply incredibly evil and brutal, they had immense power. So if you want a modern parallel, imagine a group like ISIS, or ISIL, having the military power of the United States of America. So imagine a world in which the American army, navy, and air force was under the control of ISIL. What could they do then? So this incredibly powerful empire with this incredibly evil regime, has been doing incredibly terrible things to Jonah's home country of Israel. And so when Jonah feels victimized, he has been victimized. These people have done terrible things. They've done awful things. They've done horrible things. And Jonah's sitting there thinking, I want to see these people gone. They need to be wiped from the face of the earth. Have you ever noticed when you watch movies with a bad person in it, what do you want to happen to the bad person at the end of a movie? Do you want them caught, put on trial, and sent to prison? Be honest, what do you want? You want them to die. Now here's the question, how do you want them to die? Do you want them to be running down the streets as they've been chased by the good guy, they trip over their shoelaces, fall in front of a bus, and smack like that? No. You want them to die painfully and slowly. The slower and the more painful, the better. Because they need to know they're going to die. They have to anticipate they're going to die. They have to feel the pain of what it's like to die. Which is why most bad guys die so many times. I remember watching um, that James Bond film, Goldeneye, many years ago. Do any of you watch Bond films? Yeah. Stop wasting your time. As I say, I always watch films for cultural research and analysis. That's why I watch movies. And there I am in Goldeneye. And the bad guy's fighting with James Bond. They're suspended hundreds of feet up in the air. And the bad guy, eventually, he loses his grip. And then you see him falling from the center of this giant metal needle that's part of a giant radar. And he's falling hundreds of feet down. Like that. And then, you, then the camera angle changes. You see a view from that metal needle looking down so you can see him disappearing into the distance. Then you have a ground view camera going up so you can see the body getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Then you have a view from his eyes as he, he's disappearing from James Bond and he's screaming, ah, all the way down. And after a 200-foot drop, he lands smack on the back of his head. Is he dead? No. <laughs> he opens his eyes only in time to see a massive explosion directly above his head which releases the large metal needle they were fighting on. He is directly underneath the path of said needle. Now the needle starts to come down. This massive metal spike, 10 foot long, starts coming down towards him. You see a view from the needle as it's rushing down towards his mouth, getting bigger and bigger, and you hear him screaming, ah, you have the wide angle shot, so you can see the needle coming down. Ah, you have the view from his eyes, so you can see it coming closer and closer towards him, and then it skewers him into the ground. And at this point, the whole auditorium, when I saw the premiere of that movie, everyone stood up and they started clapping like this. So often we think we're looking for justice, but what we want is revenge. And what Jonah wanted for the Ninevites, he wasn't interested in justice for them at all. He wanted them dead. 
And this is a very dangerous thing about living in a victim culture, which, ladies and gentlemen, you and I are living in, and it's around the world. Most of us get our status and our standing from all the terrible things which are done for us. The more terrible things we've experienced in life, the more we feel it disqualifies us from the rules that cover everybody else. We begin to demand special treatment and that people treat us in a special way. That somehow, that because of all the terrible things that we've suffered, we're exempt. And then, of course, we get into competitive victimhood. My pain and suffering has to be greater than your pain and suffering. So we start comparing histories. Hey, you know, about how all the terrible things that happened in your world compared to all the terrible things that listened in, uh, happened in my world. And if you spent most of your life living in the Middle East as I did, you've got 2,000 years of victimhood history to inform everything because everybody's been oppressed by everybody and everybody's been enslaved by everybody and everyone's been cheated by something from everyone. And so instead of looking for reconciliation, what we're looking for is to ratchet up because the more victim status we have, then our justice should trump their justice. So instead of thinking, well, I did something wrong and you did something wrong and I did something right and you did something right and let's just talk about this, it has to be all one or the other. So the more I've suffered and the more I've lost, my victimhood tr- tri- trumps your, your cry for justice. And then so all of a sudden my cry for justice suddenly becomes a cry for revenge and we simply tear each other apart. And we're living in a world right now where all kinds of global peace have been lost and world leaders are scrabbling, trying to understand how do you speak to a victim culture because the trouble is when you've identified as a victim, no one can disagree with you. What happens in a victim culture is your personal narrative becomes everything that I do is motivated by love but everything you do if you disagree with me is only explicable through hate. So every time you disagree with someone it's because you hate them. And so every time someone says no to you it's for the only reason you can explain it is because, well, they hate you. And here's Jonah's problem. God is sending Jonah to a group of people he hates. Jonah wants to see them wiped off the face of the planet. And God is disagreeing with Jonah. So Jonah assumes that God is wrong and that God must hate him. As a matter of fact, in Jonah chapter 4, if you read the end of the story, and reading the end of the story is so important because it changes everything. I have a very good Chinese lady who works with us and she took her two young nieces to go and see the film Paddington. Have you seen the new Paddington Bear movie. At the end of the movie, she said to them, did you like it? And they said, no, we were terrified. Why did you take us to see a horror movie? And she's like, what are you so scared of? And they said, it was a horrible movie. She said, why was it horrible? She said, because Paddington Bear, they were going to eat him and stuff him. They were chasing him through a thing and we thought he was going to be eaten and stuffed and put on display with all the other stuffed animals. And of course, my friend, she knew the ending. So she wasn't terrified at all. But for these little kids, they didn't know the ending. And they thought that couldn't understand why their mean aunt had brought them to see such a horrible film. <laughs> Knowing the ending changes everything. And the way this book ends is incredible. But just before it comes to its final conclusion, God says to Jonah twice, are you right to feel this angry with me? And the second time God asks the question, Jonah says, it is right. I am totally right, God, to feel angry with you and to reject you this way. Because as far as he's concerned, God has morally failed. And Jonah maintains his anger before God. And he says, it is right. As a matter of fact, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. I'd much rather not exist than live in a world with so much injustice in it. So that's Jonah's complaint. That's why he runs away. And that's what you read about in the first few verses of Jonah. This incredible anger. And this incredible sense that he's been betrayed and let down. Now, after that whole being swallowed by a giant fish and vomited up onto the beach, that brings a change of heart to Jonah. It would do to most people. And he feels, maybe I'll go after all, which is what happens at the beginning of Jonah chapter 3. Jonah says, you know what? Okay, I'll go and tell these people. And he goes and tells them a story, a message, that may initially not sound that encouraging to you. 
Because Jonah is basically told that he has to go around and declare a very simple message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's what it says here in the translation you have in front of you in Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. Other translations may say 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed or 40 more days and Nineveh will be judged. Now it doesn't matter really which way you translate it. The, the word which they're translating has, has that sense of overturning, of judgment. It literally does mean overturned. If you think, if you come into a terrible situation and you turn everything upside down, that has a whole series of meanings, doesn't it? Think about it, it's ambiguous. If I say, look, I walked into this terrible situation and turned everything upside down, that could mean utter chaos. Does that make sense? That's normally my speciality as a gift. It's one of my unique points as the CEO of the organisation I lead. I'm very good at creating chaos. It generates all kinds of employment for other people, so I feel it's sort of, you know, there's a benefit to it. So you can say, I turned everything upside down, that means chaos. You could say it was utterly you know, overturned, which means destroyed, ceased to exist. Has that sense? But then there's another sense. I come into this world and I turn everything upside down. If you take something that's the wrong way up and you turn it upside down, what have you done? You put it the right way up. So Jonah comes to this group of people who've done these terrible things. He wants to see them destroyed and he says, you've got 40 days and then literally your whole world will be overturned. And they hear this message and they say, you know what? Maybe if we ask God to forgive us, maybe he'll forgive us. And so every man, woman and child in this great city of Nineveh, they get on their knees and they say, God, we're sorry for what we've done wrong. The hardest thing when you're acting out of a sense of victimhood, I've been wronged, is apologising to other people who've wronged you. Have you noticed that? The worst case is when someone's done something terrible to you and you respond terribly to them and then you have to think, oh no, now I have to apologise to you. And you don't want to apologise. Why not? Because you feel like you're letting them go. That makes sense? You wish you didn't react that way. So either, either you justify your reaction or you find the strength to admit you were wrong. And the entire, the entire people of Nineveh figure out, you know what, we've done something wrong. And they humble themselves, they get on their knees and they say, God, will you forgive us? Now, by the time you get to Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, God is look, Jonah is sitting on a hill to see what happens. And when Jonah sees that everybody asks God to forgive them and everyone is forgiven, we have the famous words, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He is so angry. He can't believe it. How can all these people who have done all these terrible things be forgiven just like that? Have you ever felt that way? Now, interestingly, this book, the book of Jonah, is read out loud in the nation of Israel every year in its entirety on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is a massive national festival. Why do they read it out loud every year? The reason is because it's a book of hope. Why is it a book of hope? Because even as it ends with Jonah pointing his finger at God saying, God, you're wrong. God comes to Jonah and what does he say? He says, do you have the right to be angry? I do. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said to him, have you been concerned about this plant? God makes a plant grow over him to give him shade. You didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. So you're concerned about a plant that was literally here for 24 hours. But the Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle. 
Should I not be concerned about that great city? And it ends. What is God's last word to Jonah? Well, it's one of forgiveness. He's saying, Jonah, you're angry with me. And you're angry, and you're feeling angry about a little plant that grew up over you. How can you feel that what's happened with the plant is wrong and not look at what's happening in this city and have compassion on them? How can you not think that 120,000 people, this huge metropolis, should I not be concerned about them? Should I not care about them? Should I not wish to see them come to me? The question in the book of Jonah isn't, does God like to forgive people? The question in the book of Jonah is, Jonah able to forgive? That's the question. Will Jonah be able to let go of the anger and the hatred he feels? And will Jonah come to see that if God dealt with him in the same way he wanted him to deal with other people, Jonah wouldn't be here at all? This is one of the reasons why Christians talk about the gospel being such incredible news. When you encounter the person of Jesus Christ, a whole string of things happen. First of all, you find forgiveness for what you have done wrong. Because you have done things wrong. And if you think you haven't done anything wrong, you need to go and get married. (laughs) Secondly, it helps you to forgive everyone else all the terrible things they've done to you. Why? Well, because of all the stuff that you've been forgiven. Which is why Jesus said Christians are taught to pray, forgive me as I have forgiven other people. We don't forgive other people in order to get forgiven. We forgive other people because we've been forgiven so much we can't help but do it. And it's why you see such incredible movements of reconciliation, sometimes even within countries. God is able to turn an entire empire around if they're willing to simply humble themselves before God and say, will you please forgive us? As we all sit here today, the question isn't just simply, does God exist? The question we have is, what kind of God does exist? And that's one of the reasons why this church puts on the Alpha Course. One of the reasons this church puts on the Alpha Course is for you to find out not only if God is there, but who is he? What is he like? What kind of character does he have? Would it be right to believe in him, follow him and become like him? Or not? How does it apply to me? What difference would it make in my life? And is it true and real and how can I know that? Well, if you've got those kinds of questions, you're going to love coming on the Alpha Course. So if you've come here as a visitor today, and you're not part of the Alpha Course and you'd like to find out, why not join millions of people around the world and come along and do it? I'm not on commission here, by the way. They don't pay me to say this. I'm here as a visitor to this church and saying this because I would encourage you. I would absolutely encourage you. Come along and find out. You've got nothing to lose. They're even going to give you free food. So there are all kinds of reasons you can come. The first one is that you're interested. Come along. The other reason is you're not sure, but you're, you're debating about these things. Well, here's an opportunity to find out. The last reason why you should come is that you are morally impelled to come because you're an atheist. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's really very simple. If, you're a, if you are a convinced atheist, you think that Christians who go halfway around the world telling other people to become Christians are doing something terrible. They shouldn't be going around converting others. That's awful. And that's what this church does. It raises money and it sends people all over the world to tell other people about Jesus Christ. That takes money. But they also put on the Alpha course and give you free food. That also takes money. If you come and do the Alpha course on a Wednesday night, you'll be consuming resources that they can't use to send missionaries halfway around the world to convince someone else. So it's time for you to take a hit for the team 
okay, and just come along. Don't allow them to use it for something else. You, you, you take the consequence of that. Now, it may also be the case that you're sat here and actually you've been thinking about the Christian faith for a while. But you've been holding God at bay for whatever reason. Maybe you're scared of how it will change your life. You're scared about what it could mean. Maybe you're scared about the fact that maybe you're holding on to things that you don't want to let go of because they feel so wrong. I can remember talking to a lady who came to a whole series of meetings I spoke at once. She came every single night. She always sat on the same seat in the front row. So after a few days, I began to recognize her. Every day, every evening, would offer prayer. And I'll say, if you want to become a Christian and pray with me, I'll just invite you. Actually, there, what we asked people to do was just to stand up. And I said, I'd love to pray with you. And every evening, it looked like she was about to get out of her seat and then she sat back down in it. On the last night, I can remember thinking, you know, if she comes back for the last night, I think I might just go to her and ask if I can talk with her and just see what's going on. And sure enough, there she was on the last night. And the invitation was given and she stayed where she was. And I just afterwards came and she stayed where she stayed in the seat. I came and sat next to her and I said, I've noticed you've been coming every evening. She said, I have. I said, I, I may be misreading the situation, but it looked like to me that you were going to stand up on the point of standing up every single time only not to do anything. And she said, that's correct. I said, can I ask why? And she said, well, I was sexually abused by my grandfather who was a young girl. and I'm worried that if I allow God to forgive me, I might have to forgive him. So I said, well, what's your counselor told you? And she said, well, my counselor's told me I should hold on to my anger and I should hold on to my rage and I should vent it. So I said, well, how's that working out for you? And she said, not very well at all. I said, you know, by holding on to your anger, you're paying twice for this terrible thing that's been done to you. You've paid the first time for what happened, and now you're paying the second time every single time you bring it to remembrance. I said, if you can let this go and entrust it to God, you'll be set free. And there is a huge freedom that comes when you know someone who knows everything about your life has made it possible to forgive you. And that's why the Christian gospel is such good news. That a God who loves this world came into it to rescue it. And in spite of all of the evil and terrible things which have happened, he himself is willing to pay the ultimate price and come into this world and even give himself up to death in order to make it possible for us to both encounter and hear of God's love and through his resurrection to give us new life. That is why Jesus himself said that the sign he would give everybody, that he was the son of God, was the sign of Jonah. He said, just like Jonah went into this belly of this thing for three days so I will be dead for three days but when I come back I'll offer this message of hope and through Christ's death and resurrection he actually makes it possible for us to know this reconciliation with him and if as you sit here today you know you've been holding him at bay but you know who Jesus Christ is you know that he loves you you know why he came into this world and you need to say yes to him then I'll just invite you to pray with me and so why not just take a moment just to close your eyes if you do close your eyes, do put your hand on your purse or your wallet because we do live in a wicked world. <laughs> and you don't know who's that next to you. Why not just take a moment to close your eyes? And if you're in that place where you need to say, God, actually, I need this forgiveness in my life and I need this new, uh, this new relationship with you, why don't you just open your hands where you are as a sign of wanting to receive from him? And then just pray this very quietly with me. Dear Father, I thank you that you know me. And I thank you that even when, you run up, when I run away from you, you run after me. Lord, I want to thank you for the fact 
Lord, that you have made forgiveness and reconciliation possible and that's your desire. And Lord, I need that forgiveness in my life. And I need to be reconciled to myself, to others, but most of all, to you. I want to thank you that through your death and your resurrection, you make that possible. Lord, will you show me how to live and how to follow you? Lord, in Christ's holy name, amen. If you did pray that prayer for the first time, do talk to one of the team here before you leave. Stephen will come up and give you directions. And certainly if you prayed that prayer, please do come along on the Wednesday. Uh, You'll find it is the most excellent way also to begin in a group of other people who disagree with what you actually think about to be able to examine what it really means to be a Christian. Thank you for listening to me. You've all been so gracious. And I can say this with my hand on my heart without any exaggeration whatsoever that out of all of the congregations I've ever spoken to in my entire life, you are by far the most recent. I'm Bear Grylls. My favourite way to start the day, the Bible in one year. That's how wild I am. Find out more at BibleInOneYear.org or download the Bible in One Year app.